see some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, guy. Okay. Yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. It is spit. It is June the 1st. It's a Monday, and there's a lot going on in our world, David. And um, first of all, let me uh, welcome you to the show. Look, for our listeners, David Lee Scales is in Huntington Beach and looking disheveled like a used piece of aluminum foil. (laughs) That is quite the introduction. Uh, Which part of me most looks like an aluminum foil my reflective surface my super crunchy skin you just have the disheveled wrinkled look of a used piece of aluminum foil so like it's balled up and then you unball it and so it's then can never be put back to flat yes bereft of smoothness lacking a shine awesome awesome well thanks for that i feel uh I'm not sure how to feel about it, to be honest. Um, anyways, Scott, lots going on in the world today, dude. We, uh, we've had some technical difficulties, so you and I have covered this. This will be the fourth time that we're discussing this, but let's do it with the same amount of fervor and enthusiasm that we gave the first three. Fuck the looters and fuck the rioters. How's that? <laughs> Boom. Nailed it. Nailed it. That's all that needs to be said. Nailed it. Um, so look... Uh, we've gotten political in the last couple of months on this show, and I don't know that it's a good move. Um, so we don't need to get too political and cover all of the rioting that's going on and the reasons why. However, let's focus on the kids that stole surfboards at a Patagonia surf shop in, or Patagonia store in Santa Monica. And let's just call those people kooks straight out. And whatever has been happening, uh, what the terrible things that have happened with injustice in our country are super far removed from looting surfboards out of Santa Monica, uh, Patagonia. So those guys are kooks, the guys and girls, they've been largely identified via social media. Kook of the day posted it. Um, a couple of other people posted video and photos of the looters walking out with surfboards. And I've started to see that those people are being, um, identified. So hopefully the boards will get back to their, uh, rightful owners, the Patagonia store and, there can be some reparations made. Yeah. You know, as you mentioned earlier, there's apparently some people being ID'd and now all of a sudden they're feeling sorry for their actions. And I question whether if they had been caught, they would be feeling any remorse. If they had not been caught, would they be feeling any remorse? And I'm not sure, but um, definitely they are our kook kooks of the week. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. I don't think that they would feel the level of remorse that they're feeling because their face is plastered on social media. If they did it and got away with it, I have a feeling they'd be keeping those boards. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. The group, I don't know, it'd be a sociological thing to study, but the group mentality of operating and behaving in a way that you never would normally in your life, strictly because you know that you can get away with it and there's other people in the group operating that way is a really fascinating thing. And I've never um, been a part of a 
pro a big protest or riot like that. So I don't know how I would behave, but it is kind of appalling to think that humanity loses all of its humanity once they're in a group and they think that they can get away with something. Yeah, you're right. Group psychology. It's, it is pretty fascinating. Um, I've certainly, and I bet you've been in a situation where you got caught up in group psychology and you didn't even realize it, not to this extent, like stealing. I just mean like, you know, whatever it may be, maybe you're at a ball game and everyone's moving in one direction and, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, it's easy to see how people can get caught up in the flow of uh, the direction that, that the, uh, the group is going. I mean, I remember instances from my youth where maybe we were like picking on a kid or making fun of a kid and I knew I felt terrible about it, but I still participated in it. And then, yeah, couldn't sleep that night because of the guilt or whatever. But I was a child and I've grown out of that and I've learned that my own dignity you know, isn't worth that momentary group fitting into the group. And so you actively kind of defy those things. And I think this is an opportunity where or a time where we have that opportunity to defy what is clearly wrong and unjust in society and to behave appropriately. Um, so I, I don't know. I would say I'm not anti-protest or anything like that. I'm certainly anti-rioting and anti-violence. But look, for any protesters who want to make a change, maybe direct some of those protests at City Hall, at police departments where there is an accusation of injustice or corruption or some sort of thing like that. But look, looting Patagonia store in Santa Monica, again, has very little to do with George Floyd. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm absolutely pro protest. Let's not, let's not, uh, you know, get this confused. I'm pro peaceful protest and there've been some great ones and I wish the news would focus more on them. I do understand that, um, you know, violence and stuff, you know, businesses being burned makes for, you know, viewable content and a lot of eyeballs, but um, there's a lot of good peaceful protests that are happening and I support those wholeheartedly. It's the rioters and the looters who have co-opted the protests and made it a, a selfish thing and it's, it's horrible and, and they're my kook. I mean, it really, it really feels like, there's people sitting at home seeing the melee and they think to themselves, I want a PlayStation. Here's my opportunity. And they're not doing the rioting and the looting for any, um, you know, noble pursuit or noble reason. It's strictly to get stuff. Now, I've heard on the news, some of the looters and rioters trying, trying to rationalize their behavior as, you know, Hey, this is what they get, you know, right. that kind of attitude. And um, that's very short-sighted and it's going to get you arrested. Well, it's, sh it's short-sighted. No, it's short-sighted and it also undermines the actual good work of the protest entirely. So Absolutely. they're, they're derailing the original ambition. Anyway, Scott, what's going on with California gold surf auction? Wow. Thanks for asking. Um, we are excited to announce that the auction bidding will open on July 25th. California Gold Surf Auction bidding opens July 25th, and the auction will close two weeks later, beginning at 5 p.m. on Saturday, August 8th. So every two minutes, uh, one of the surfboard lots will close, 
And it's an exciting time. You can bid, David, as you know, from anywhere in the world by using your desktop, laptop, iPad, tablet, or smartphone. Download the app for your iPhone or iPad. Search the App Store for California Gold Surf Auction. David, we have boards from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, including boards designed, built, and crafted by Pacific Systems Homes, who you know, David, as the first manufacturer of surfboards. Greg Knoll, Donald Takayama, Bing Copeland, Mike Diffender for Michael Hinson, Al Merrick, Peter Schroff, Sean Stusty, Mickey Dora, Milton Willis, Barry Kanaya Puni, Jerry Lopez, Court Guyon, Steve Liss, Rich Pavel, Skip Fry, Dick Brewer, Rennie Yader, Clyde Beatty Jr., Mark Andrini, John Bradbury, Hank Warner, Mike Eaton, Terry Fitzgerald, Simon Anderson, Lance Carson, Phil Edwards, Mickey Munoz, and on and on and on. We've got all the heavy hitters in this auction. Personal boards belonging to Mark Fu, Simon Anderson, Andy Irons, Mickey Munoz, John John Florence, and Lance Carson. All of these boards, all of these lots, and more on the auction block, California Gold Surf Auction. We're excited about moving forward with this online auction once again. Uh, how many of those boards are you actually going to buy for yourself? Well, it's funny that you say that. The So I was writing up one of the... Um, descriptions in the software for the auction and there's a pacific systems homes board in there right and you know these boards these are the boards that were built in the 30s and 40s they're the like beach boy waikiki just heavy 12 foot 150 pound redwood surfboards and they're just massive right they're they're unwieldy they're so big and heavy they're almost well they are burdensome right but we have one that's seven feet it's the Waikiki model. It was made for a kid. It's seven feet. It's much thinner. It's maybe three inches thick instead of eight inches thick. And it probably only weighs 35 pounds. And so it's a great example of that Pacific Systems Homes manufactured redwood surfboard. It's got 15 layups. It's a balsa and redwood. And, um, but it's so much easier to deal with. So you get all the provenance of this and, and all any real collector has a Pacific Systems Homes board in their collection. You, you absolutely have to. It's, it's sort of like the alpha. It's the genesis of your collection. It really started there. And so um, this is a great opportunity to own one of those and to be able to display it wherever you want to display it with ease. Like I said, it's only probably 30 or 35 pounds. It's seven feet long. It's an, and it's a gorgeous representation of these boards. So to me, that's one where I'm like, gosh, you know what? Um, I would love to have that board because, again, the, the 10 and 11-footers are just – they're just huge. They're just – there's nowhere to store them. They're pain in the ass. They're super heavy. Yeah. People don't even necessarily want to buy them because they're such a pain in the butt. But this is a great opportunity to own a Pacific Systems Homes board and that's, like I said, that's doable, that's, that's manageable. And, it, again, it has all the problems. And, in fact, I think these smaller ones are much more – rare they are right. rarer because they only made so many of these small kids versions so the pretty it's a waikiki model it's a really cool board and we'll have it um up for display you'll be able to look at everything and check it all out how did you online. find how did you find that board oh i can't just you know divulge okay all of my sources but um i've got great sources as is obvious of my you know eight years of doing surfboard auctions. I, I know right. who owns boards and they know me. Um, 
what is the business? What was the main business of Pacific Home Builders? I mean, were they they were obviously home builders, right? Why did they get into surfboard yeah. building? Uh, the one the father had a son, um, and he um, the last name is Butte. Um, and I wish I had all my history in front of me here, but uh, basically the son got into surfing. He's like, Dad, let's build boards. They were building. You know, they were building, I think, prefabricated homes out of obviously out of wood. And the dad's like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do boards. My son wants to build boards. Let's build some boards. And so they did it sort of as a side hobby and it, and it took off. And that part of the business took off for a while. And um, that's, that's why Pacific Systems Homes was in the surfboard manufacturing business because of the son. They should have just set up a separate business name. Pacific Systems Surfboards, I would argue, would be a good choice. Yes. Um, <laughs> it would have made a little bit more sense, but yes. fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, awesome. He, you know what I'm curious about too, or I would like to know if you have any insight into it is what do you, given COVID and the crises that is going on, do you expect auction sales to be up, down, flat from previous auctions? Are people going to be spending money on surfboards? Well, it's funny you say that because uh, my friend is, is heavily involved in car auctions. And if car auctions are any indication, people are fired up. You know, they're fired up to look at, at cars and boards, they're fired up to buy cars and boards. Generally people um, uh, that are in that marketplace have some money, they see investment opportunities and um, cash is king right now. So yeah, we expect a, a robust and vibrant auction. Good. Uh Interestingly, surfboard customs sales are through the roof. I've, yeah. talked to a, I've talked to a bunch of surfboard shapers. I was actually had dinner with Josh Hall last night and he's like, dude, I can't keep up. And so I, I think it's probably reflective of a couple of things. One of which is that retail stores have been closed for months. And so, and people are still surfing. So if you're surfing and you need a surfboard, the only option is to go direct to a shaper. And then once you're working with a shaper, it becomes a custom surfboard. Usually, I mean, shapers do have stock boards, but for realistically, if you start communicating with a shaper, you're going to get talked into a custom surfboard. And um, so it's great to see that like a lot of the guys that you work with through the boardroom show and a lot of guys that certainly we've interviewed on our podcast are thriving through this, you know? Yeah, that's good to hear. Absolutely. And, and also another aspect of this is that I've got sellers that are like, hey, I should get rid of some boards right now. I need some cash. So it's definitely a buyer's market, you know, like it's going to be a good time. I would say two thirds of, of the boards in the auction are at no reserve. So um, people are like, Hey, whatever I can get for it, let's do this. And um, it's going to be, if you're, if you've got cash in your pocket, it's going to be a good time to buy. Have you ever had a no reserve auction item sell for wildly under its value? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely occurs. And um, that's what, the beauty of no reserve auction, which is why we produce generally no reserve auctions. What's been the biggest bargain that you've seen? Uh, I, I mean, I, I'd have to look back at my, my spreadsheets. You know, I, I can't recall exactly one thing in yeah. particular, but, but there's value. There's definitely value out there. And, right. um, and like I said, that Pacific Systems Homes Board, I mean, back in say 07 or 09 or 
05 when Randy Rarick was doing his auction in Hawaii, that board was selling for fifteen twenty thousand dollars Wow. You know? And so, um, and those are boards that are, like I said, they're culturally and historically significant. They're super important to the collector market. Those are never going to um, go out of style. Right. You know, they're super important. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, congrats on yeah, that. Yeah, well, I'll reveal more boards as we get closer here. We're a couple months away, so um, we'll be talking about it more. And, of course, the California Gold Surf Auction Instagram will be um, going crazy. And, and, and again, we'll, do, we'll be doing live previews on Instagram Live and Facebook Live. So I'll have these boards on display, and I'll be able to take questions from anybody that has – um, you know, some wants to know more about these boards. We'll be there taking questions and measuring and showing all the different characteristics of the board and doing our best to make sure that the, the buyers get a good, get some good insight into what the board's about. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, what do you have in surf news today? I've got all sorts of stuff. I'm going to start with this one, which I think is interesting. Ross Clark Jones is stewing survivor Australia. Of course, Ross Clark Jones, David, you know, I know, the big wave legend from Australia and a guy that was on the world tour for a while. Um, he is suing the show's production company over an injury that occurred during the show. This is taking place in a Victorian Supreme Court. Ross Clark Jones is claiming damages for his medical expenses as well as the loss of past and future earnings in his big wave surfing career as a result of a snapped ankle. Now, in case you missed it, David Ross was taking part in a challenge in one of the 2019 season's episodes when the rope that he was swinging on snapped, sending him plummeting to the ground. The accident occurred May 30th of last year, so a year ago, and it is understood that Ross Clark Jones Ross Clark Jones has suffered anxiety and depression as a result of this injury. He basically snapped the ankle at the joint and it's been detrimental to the career as a big wave surfer. Um, he's suing for not only loss of wages from his big wave surfing career, but he was a favorite to win the competition. So he's also suing for loss of income, which may have occurred from him potentially winning the $500,000 as the winner of Survivor Australia. So, um, Ross Clark Jones. What do you know about Ross Clark Jones and this story, David? Look, uh, first of all, he's 54 years old. Um, did which, you know about this? Yeah, I did know about this. This is in my notes, too. It, the most shocking thing about this story was that his name is Howard. I was completely... <laughs> I was completely unaware, but when you look at the legal paperwork, it says Howard Ross, Howard. Yeah, I think it's Howard Ross and then Clark Jones. But I was like, Howard, how has this eluded us all these years? He doesn't look like a Howard. Howard isn't like a badass name, you know, like this guy is a badass and his name is Howard. I could see why he ditched the Howard. Anyways, um, the fact that he's 54 and still making a living as a professional big wave surfer is tremendous and also probably part of the reason why he was even invited on survivor um i am anti-litigation in general like certainly there's reasons and times to sue people i think certainly in california and america there's so many frivolous lawsuits and 
if you got injured on a reality show, guaranteed lawyers are going to line up and then offer to sue for you because you will get paid out some amount of money and it'll make it worth their time. However, this feels pretty legitimate to be honest with you. I looked at the footage, the rope fully broke there. The culpability is on the production company and survivor has been running in America for decades now. And they've never once had a faulty piece of equipment like this. And I think this is like the third season of survivor in Australia. And it's just ridiculous. Like that rope should be tested and whatever uh, contraptions are holding the rope should be tested for everybody's weight and secure for your weight times 10. You know what I mean? Like a rope breaking is a pretty simple thing to avoid. And so the culpability is certainly on the production company and there's nothing that Ross could have done to have avoided this. And it's not as if he slipped. It's not as if his strength let him down and that's how he ended up. It was simply a faulty, faulty equipment. And um, so I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. I don't know what the the thing is. They never they didn't reveal what number they're actually suing for. So the prob this would be problematic for me if the number is ten million dollars. You know what I, I mean, I, or something like I agree. that. I totally agree with you. This is absolutely um, a legit case. I'm sure they're going to ask for five million. This is going to get settled for one point five, something like that. And Ross Clark Jones is. Um, is going to have some money and I think he deserves it. I, I agree with you. Like this, the rope broke, you know, like this is no fault of his and it ruined his potential to make money. Again, this is a slam dunk settlement. I bet he gets 1.5 here in the U S uh, there's no taxes on, on legal settlements. So in many ways he could really get off. I, I don't know if that's the case in Australia, but um, you know, if, if you made 500 grand winning, uh, survivor, you're probably going to get taxed here in the U.S. for it. So getting a $1.5 million settlement untaxed, assuming that's the number, is a pretty big windfall. And again, I, an injury this severe, he's probably going to be have a gimpy leg, you know, for the rest of his life on, at some level, especially as he gets older. Yeah, this could be the biggest boon. This could be the biggest accomplishment of Ross Clark Jones's career, to be honest. Um, no, would, dude, come on. Would you? Dude, Ross Clark Jones made Mad Wax. He was in Mad Wax, perhaps the greatest Australian surf movie ever. Not a okay, fine. Not his greatest accomplishment, but his greatest earning of his career. Um, would you take a broken ankle and a year sideline for one point five million bucks? Yes, I would. I think I would too. I think I would too. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but I think I would. Dude, the thing is, in his scenario, it's not guaranteed. But the scenario that I'm painting is Kathy Bates shows up with, with her sledgehammer and her two by four between your ankles and a briefcase of $1.5 million. And she's like, let me swing this hammer. I'm only going to take one ankle and this briefcase is yours. If it's Kathy Bates, I might do it for 1.2. <laughs> you just paid 300 K to have Kathy Bates instead of a rando. I got a, I got a thing for Kathy Bates. <laughs> gross. By the way, how, how, that's, that's why it was funny, David, because it was gross. How, um, I don't know, traumatic was that scene in misery when you watched that? She's so great. That is so great. And James Conn's great. Right. Totally. James Conn's kind of underrated. 
Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. When I was watching that scene as a 13 year old, David Scales, I was just seeing where it was going. I was like, no way they're going there. And when she swings that thing, I was traumatized for life. I'm still thinking about it. I believe she won an Academy Award for that. Yeah, I think you might be right. She won supporting actor. I think you might be right. Okay, I've got another question about Howard. Um, Last week in my kook, I referenced Jason Magnalanus posting those partiers and leaving the beach trashed in Hawaii. The one thing I didn't mention is when I went to his Instagram account, the first thing that he has listed in his little bio, it says pro surfer. I thought to myself, how long can you continue to call yourself a pro surfer? (laughs) Okay. No, the bigger question is why isn't that in your bio, David? As far as I'm concerned, you're a pro. I'm a pro. What does it take to be a pro surfer? Not much. All you got to do is create a resume and put in the, the word, the phrase pro surfer and you're in. Apparently that is all that it takes. Um, because I mean, look, Jason Magnolinus is a great surfer. He was a pro surfer for a period of time. He was earning a living from sponsors and from contest winnings as a, as a surfer. At this point, I don't know how much of his income is directly related to his uh, surfing exposure. And so I thought to myself with Ross Clark Jones, I'm like, dude, you know what? Is he still, I mean, he is, I mean, he's suing for lost earnings from professional surfing. He's saying for these, this year, yeah, he's got Red Bull stickers. He's got Quicksilver stickers on his board. And I was like, I'm curious what that number is. How much money is he earning as a professional surfer at the age of 54? He's done a he's done a great job staying relevant. He's had TV shows, TV shows and limited series uh, documenting him and his big wave exploits. And you know what? I'm updating my LinkedIn profile right now. (laughs) I just became a pro surfer, but no, you're right. He's done a good job of it. And and um, how much is he getting paid? I'm sure. I shoot. I don't know. I bet he's getting like between 2,500 US dollars and 4,000 US dollars a month from all of his sponsors. I'm just, I have no reason. uh, I I don't know where I'm grabbing those numbers from, but I do know. I love that you just manufactured like a pretty significant range. There's like from from 2,500 to 4,000 is like, I don't know, a 40% difference. Um, (laughs) Well, I just look at it like this. Quicksilver just went bankrupt, you know, four or five years ago or whatever. They went through a restructuring. This board sports company, whatever they're called, bought them and Billabong. Everybody in Quicksilver got let go. And then they're Quicksilver, somewhere the marketing team's looking and going, okay, who do we keep, you know? And, and they're like, okay, we've got some heritage guys. We've got like Tom Carroll and Ross Clark Jones. So let's, those two guys are actually huge in Australia. It's good. They're, they're, they're both probably have huge Instagram accounts. They're both staying relevant. They're both in the public eye. Let's keep those guys. They're smart and they're legends. One of them was a world champ. The other one's like a big wave icon. So let's pay them a couple grand a month or 2,500 a month and just keep them on, you know, and we can't pay them what we used to pay them, you know, probably, you know, at one point, I think 89, Tom Carroll was making 1.2 million a year or whatever it is. So anyway, 2,500 seems legit. I'm shocked that like when Quicksilver did the calling, I'm shocked that Ross Clark Jones survived it. To be honest, out of their entire team of surfers, Ross Clark Jones stays on. Um, And again, I'm not anti Ross Clark Jones. It's just, he doesn't, I'm not sure 
who he's selling product to. He's not moving the needle for you, huh? I don't know. Is he moving the needle for you? He's more your age group. No, I just, I, I see him as just a guy that when Quicksilver calls, he's like, sure, what do you want me to do? Like, he's just smart and he's smart enough to be like, yes, I'll do it. And they're like, this guy is so great. We love working with this guy. He's not a problem. He's taking every pay cut. Let's, let's, yeah. let's keep him on, you know, like, let's just give him product and, and a thousand to, you know, whatever it is a month. And now he's down to a thousand bucks. He keeps well, keep giving him pay cuts every five minutes. <laughs> I have he, no idea, but the guys in the public and down in Australia, the guys on TV, I mean, yeah. he's, he's well, much he's, more well-known down there and that's good for sales down there. And, you know, I mean, he, he gets the brand out there. He's a brand ambassador. And uh, so much so that he goes on Survivor, you know? So I agree. I, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm also surprised that Red Bull is his other sponsor because I think of Red Bull as being focused and geared towards the youth. So um, I'm, I'm now wondering if Red those companies- focused on content. And Roscard Jones goes to Nazare every single swell and absolutely charges it. Yeah, he does. I'm now wondering though, if both Red Bull and Quicksilver stopped paying him, two or three years ago and he continues to keep their stickers on the board just because it elevates his own brand a little bit. And at this point he's like, all right, my potential earnings, if they like, he's going after a fictitious number at this point, just like you're making up the fictitious numbers. This is all a house of cards that once the, um, the opposing legal team does their due diligence and asks for bank statements, they're going to realize those deposits have stopped being made a couple of years ago. That is such a good move to use stickers of an old sponsor on your board as leverage for a potential new sponsor. Totally. Because <laughs> once, once you go vacant, it's a bad look. You don't want that house on the market for too long, you know? That's so true. <laughs> the value starts I diminishing. Should, I probably should peel the stickers off of my boards. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah what, what would your, who are your sponsors? I would like to know. Uh, Back in the day, um, I actually never made a dime from a company regarding putting stickers on boards, but, but I had stickers on boards. I was a Grom with stickers on boards, believe me. You know what stickers should be on your boards right now? Need Essentials. Needessentials.com, baby. They're really, they are our benevolent benefactors of yes. the Spit Podcast. We would not exist without Need Essentials. Um, which I wouldn't go that far. That's going a little far. We love we need would, essentials. Come on. We would exist. I Come love on, buddy. You uh, and I would exist. The podcast would move forward. But you'd be freezing in the ocean because you'd be naked and this subject to the elements. Um, so shriveled. So need essentials, wetsuits, keeping us in business and outerwear, not just wetsuits. You know, speaking of Australian legends, Jody Cooper was inducted into the 2020 Australian Surfing Awards Hall of Fame last week. Mrs. Cooper's surfing career started, she was an amateur in 81, turned professional two years later. By 1984, she ranked number four in the world. She had a professional win in your hometown where there's looting and rioting going on right now, David, in Huntington Beach, California in the year of 1985. Um, her most cherished victory, Bell's Beach. She rang the bell in 1985 and added two titles in Hawaii as well. She quit the tour in 1994 after suffering a back injury. Um, and there's this thing called the Jody Cooper Award, and it's made to the Western Australian Female Surfer of the Year. So Jody Cooper inducted into the Australian Surfing Awards Hall of Fame last week. That's awesome. Um, almost worthy of a Duke shout out, I would say. 
Yes. Yeah, I have exactly. I have I have a separate duke for the end of the show but I'll give her an honorary mid-show duke. Right. Um enough. and by the way for the record I'm no I am not Huntington Beach is not my hometown. Long Beach is my hometown and I've since relocated. I'm a Newport Beach resident now. So you can you can abandon all of your Huntington Beach tropes whenever you want to try to sling mud this way and make fun of me. There are no <laughs> chain there are no chain wallets in Newport Beach. There are no pit bulls. No, no, no. Watched you've, on a... <laughs> you've turned all that in now. You're, you're about like Lululemon, yoga pants. You probably yes. drive a leased Range Rover. Um, and you, you on. own like a very, a very cute chihuahua that your girlfriend carries around in a purse. Go on. Yes, this to, is all accurate. <laughs> okay, so you're in Newport Beach. You've got all the trappings of a Newport Beach resident. There's an, yeah, with no, no, looting, no looting and rioting. We are you know safe coolest, in our little bubble. Move. So here's the coolest move. If you live in, if you, the coolest move to live in Newport Beach is to actually live in Costa Mesa. Mm. Yeah. Good. Good tip. I'll, I'll make a, I'll start looking for a new place. Thank you. I'll, I'll make that move. <laughs> um, by the way, late last night, might've been early this morning, Beach Grit released a video, um, nine minute little interview video with Felipe Toledo entitled Candid. Did you see this? No. I talked to Derek Riley about this months and months ago where he's like, dude, uh, we did this interview. Actually, Sam George did the interview um, with Felipe talking, really focused and addressing his quote, fear of big waves or what you and I and the rest of surf media has you know, sold as his fear of big waves. And it's in relation, uh, we've seen it over the years, he certainly dominates small waves. And then we saw him get uh, the second ever zero heat score at Chopu in 2015. I don't remember who the first one was, I should have actually looked this up. But again, the second surfer in history to score zero points in a heat, Felipe Toledo at Chopu. Really? Yes. He's only the second? I, I... That surprises me. I know that there's guys um, in the 19, I think it was the, I want to say 86 maybe, or late 80s when they moved the, the Billabong Pro from Sunset to Waimea. Mark Richards won that event as a retired pro surfer. He, he just happened to be on the North Shore and surfed in it. But there was guys, and I'm not sure who, but that just didn't show up for their heat. But was, I think those, those guys get zeros, don't they? For sure they do. Was that a CT it was like event? Gary, I, I don't, I think, I think in, back then it was, you know, this was, I mean, this was like, um, this might've been, it was just early days of ASP. It was a Sunset Beach World Cup, the Billabong Pro. I don't know if it was a CT. I don't even know if they had the QS back then. I don't know how it went down, but I want to say like, there was guys and I don't want to throw names out and be wrong here. So I'm not, but. It's, well, it's, you can add, Google it and find out. Add Felipe Toledo to that illustrious list. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, when I talked to Derek about it months ago, he's like, yeah, Felipe's not scared. Like you guys got that all wrong, you know, like he'll charge. So finally they released this video. It's nine minutes. It's available on beach grit. We'll put it on spitpodcast.com. And I'm not convinced that Felipe's not scared, dude. I'm not either. Not at all. Like he, he says that he's not scared and he gave some reasons for uh, why that experience went down the way it went down. But 
I was not at all convinced. Look, if he, even if he isn't quote scared, he's not nearly as comfortable in big waves as he clearly is in small waves. And then a step beyond that, he's nowhere near the fierce competitor that he is in small waves. So if you draw Felipe in a heat at pipe or anywhere else, you've got an easy draw. Maybe he's not scared, but he's definitely not going to be uh, the, the amount of like ocean prowess and like barrel riding skill that you need to thrive in those conditions is pretty unique. And Felipe doesn't have that. So look, I don't care whether he's scared or not, almost irrelevant at this point, but he's not going to be winning heats at pipe next year or whenever we call contest back on. Yeah. And I'm not even sure. I, I think big pipe is kind of freaky and for sure. Chopu. But when I think of, Felipe Toledo and I say okay is he a big wave surfer and of course the answer is no like you don't see him hunting down purple blobs and going to jaws and that's okay that's that's not not required of a CT surfer Um, but it's easy to just say yeah I'm not first of all the problem here's what I think is the problem is that it's okay to be fearful but it's about using the fear in a positive way like those guys that's like there's those guys that are surfing jaws and big chopu it's scary. They'll tell you it's scary. They've got some fear, but they seem to be able to take it and turn it into a positive rather than a negative. So it's, it's really, for me, it's about getting over the hump of that fear and be able to face it and move through it. Yeah. And Felipe can say all he wants, but his actions to this point, I don't think have proven that he's, he's moved through the fear. I'll be the first one to stand up and congratulate him when we've seen through his actions that that is that's taken place. And I will say I've seen I have seen improvement from him. Yeah. And he's still pretty young. Isn't Felipe like 22 or something like he was on tour pretty young. Yeah, I'm not sure how old he is. I I would guess that he might be 25 or so at this point. But that's not an excuse because you got but when you you look at the development of a surfer still some surfers like you know they get their big wave chops when they're 28 or 30 you know it takes some yeah. seasons so i know and i do I'm agree holding out hope i agree with you when that heat went down um we did see improvement throughout the rest of the season and they actually addressed that he said that uh kelly slater called him because toledo was in the contention for a world title that year And Kelly actually called him going into pipe and said, Hey, Felipe, you're my pick for the world title. I want you to win. So I'm going to help you out at pipeline. Like I'll give you coaching. I'll give you guidance, whatever you want to know. And so they paddled out there together and Kelly told him exactly where to line up and um, where to position himself. And as a result of that, Felipe actually got barreled at pipeline in that pipe masters event. He, he upped his game. So look, the problem with that is that that's what hap- that's supposed to happen when you're 15, when you're a Grom in the Volcom house. Like that shouldn't happen when you're running, you know, you're in the contention for a world title. Like that hurdle should have already occurred. And if it and, didn't happen when he was 15, he should have been in Hawaii for the month prior. Yeah. Hurt, jumping those hurdles for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, at any rate, it's worth watching. Check it out. Felipe Toledo, Candid. I'm a fan, by the way. I, I like Felipe. I think he's a good guy. I, I know he's good for the tour. Uh, and I look forward to the day when, when we're, we can put our, our foot in our mouths and eat crow here. You know? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Everybody, everybody who I know who worked 
who has worked with Felipe from his sponsors to whoever else says nothing but positive things. Super hard worker, unbelievably talented, positive, takes care of a very extended family. Yes. Um, All of those things. I'm I'm a big fan. Like I said, I will say this though, you've heard me and you've joined me in sort of railing against the WSL for not having more waves of consequence on tour. And frankly, Felipe Toledo is the reason I'm like, look, I want a well-rounded world champion. I don't want a guy that can't surf 12-foot chopu with the balls of Andy Irons, uh, you know, they can't do that right? Um, to be my world champion. It's just, it's illegitimate. Totally. And by the way, um, I, I'm now remembering my thoughts on that Chopu heat. It was low tide. It was viciously low tide. As I recall, like it like the reef was ridiculously, from what I recall, it was shallow. It shallower was worse than normal. Yeah, it was. And it was scary. And he had an elbow injury, but my thought was, you're a professional surfer in a world title hunt. Fear is on not TV. an on if fear is not an option. And there's rescue teams. There's skis. The skis aren't going to be able to ha- prevent you from hitting the reef. But if you do get in, in the case that you do get injured, there's every single possible option there to save you from this scenario. You're not out surfing Mavericks like the Jeff Clark example we were talking about last week by yourself. You you've got everything going for you here. So you got to throw yourself over the ledge. You have no excuse. And it's, it's almost incumbent upon you once you're getting paid money that you have to paddle into the wave and go. So fear was not an option in my mind from that heat, but at any rate, everything else you said is also true. And he's a good, yeah, I'm a fan. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if we eat crow soon. I mean, I don't think you would come out with this if you weren't ready to prove to the world that you're ready to take on the heaviest and gnarliest waves that, that come your way and do it with a sort of panache that makes everyone go, wow, cool. He's done it. He's over the, he's over the hurdle. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of put some added pressure on him. I would suggest, you know, um, yeah. I think he knows that you just can't come out and say it. You got to go do it. I think you're entirely right. And also you will get left in the dust in this modern era, Felipe or Toledo, uh, Idolo is not pulling back. Gabriel is not pulling back. Those guys haven't even flinched in the face of a wave at Pipe, Cloudbreak, or Chopu. Or the box, remember that? Remember Idolo's first wave ever at the box? Like, that's what Felipe has to deal with now, and he simply will not get his world title if he doesn't do those things. It needs to, it, yeah, it's almost like his world title needs to include some heats and some where he has done, you know, where he proves his medal. Basically. Yeah. Or, or we're all going to kind of go, okay, you know, um, we love the guy, but is there an asterisk here? <laughs> yeah, there, there for sure I is. To say that. Small wave wizard is what his moniker is going to be. He's already owns that throne of small wave wizard. We want to see him upgrade to a different title throughout his career and evolve into a better surfer and a more well-rounded surfer. And right now he's not. So I think it does everyone. I think they should have Sunset Beach on the on the tour. Of course. I, just, I would love to see Gabe Medina just absolutely frothing at big sunset and all of these guys, Elo, all these guys you mentioned, and it's gonna help it's gonna help Felipe. We've seen you know? Gabe Medina at Sunset in triple crown events, and 
he shreds. He, I remember a couple of years ago, him doing the craziest Hail Mary floater, going up for that death-defying section and free-falling, and you're just thinking, don't try to land that. You're going to blow out your knees, and he stomped it. Yeah, you know, it's, there's been so much tension to pipeline over the last 35 years or whatever it's been, and, and, and rightfully so, but everyone will tell you that when you think of, when I think of the North Shore of Oahu, I think of Sunset Beach. I mean, Sunset Beach needs to be on the CT. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's the alpha, you know, it's just, it's massive and it's incredible. And anyway, we've, we've barked up this tree numerous times. Super, super high risk, super high reward. Hey, who's the biggest Gabe Medina rival? Currently, I would say, He's his own worst enemy, but John John Florence on paper. Well, uh, the WSL put out a little thing that Jake Howard wrote, basically saying that maybe the best modern rivalry is Julian Wilson versus Gabe Medina. And Jake went on to kind of break down some reasons why um, some some man-on-man heats that earlier in their careers, Julian sort of owned the, the score and then Gabe in the past couple of years has sort of taken back that title from from Julian as far as their man-on-man confrontations but I found myself going I don't this feels like I'm I, no one loves a manufactured rivalry more than me but this one feels manufactured sure on paper but I don't think anybody any of us go oh yeah Julian Wilson and Gabe Medina have a rivalry like that's news to me yeah I I don't, I mean, I can think of the exact instance, instances that Jake probably wrote about. There was the one in uh, Portugal, I believe, where, Gabe, where uh, Gabriel Medina was crying on stage after he lost to Julian. Yes. And I remember Julian needing a score and he did like an air reverse and it was a kind of a crappy wave and we weren't, he needed like a six something and a low he six. He might have got underscored, didn't he? He was underscored. I Gabe thought he was. He felt like he was. No, the the way it worked was Julian was overscored and then Julian won the heat. Julian needed the score. He got the wave. And everybody, Julian fans are like, he got the score. And then Gabriel fans were thinking, no way, that wasn't the score. And that's exactly, it was divided down those two lines of just whoever you were a fan of. And I was a fan of Julian at the time and I picked it. There was another heat at, um, it was the final of the 2014 Pipe Masters and the waves were pumping. And Gabriel got a 10-point ride right out of the gates, and then he backed it up with like a high eight or something like that. Julian Wilson then got a 9-7, and so he needed an eight-something. And there was 15 minutes there of waiting and priority switching and get guys getting low scores. With a minute and a half left, Julian took off on a super clean backdoor wave, get the things a gaping wide open. It's, it was easy to surf. It wasn't like one that he had to navigate, but he gets blown out. He comes out screaming. I think they use this imagery in a lot of their marketing still to this day. He comes out screaming and claiming heavily and ultimately gets the score. Gabriel Medina's out the back gets a He actually had priority gets the wave at pipeline navigates it really difficultly and comes out. And so he thinks maybe he can better his eight point ride in the end, the scores get read out on the beach. Julian Wilson wins the, uh, his first pipe masters trophy and the heat. I think Gabriel actually might've won a world title that year, 
Um, but I, I went back like in my, in that moment, I felt like Julian won because again, I'm a Julian fan. I went back and watched that heat after the fact. I think Gabe got underscored. I went back and watched that other heat that I'm talking about. I think Gabe got underscored with the benefit of hindsight and without all the emotion of like watching it live. Gabriel, I think is kind of the perennial. He gets underscored regularly because he's so good and we expect so much of him that it's kind of like, if it's not a 10, it's a letdown. And so we're going to give you an eight when anybody else, it would have been uh, a 10 or a 9.8 or something like that. So I could see this rivalry being sincere. Something about it isn't as sexy as a John John rivalry or the Kelly and Andy rivalry. I I actually think the, a rivalry that we might see um, sort of manifest more as we move through here is the Idolo and Gabe rivalry. I, I did a podcast with Danilo Cuoto and he spoke about Idolo is from the same beaches where Danilo's from. And it's a very proud blue collar working class type of situation. And, and Gabe, I think is from a little bit more upper class area or at least his socioeconomically Gabe's perhaps his family may be a little bit better off. So I think there's this kind of blue collar, white collar thing between Gabe and Idolo that is real. You know, that I sensed that it was real. I sensed that there was a real pride about Idolo from Danilo. And um, I, I sense that there could be something there that we don't even see here in North America. And that is perhaps not even um, sort of excavated over in Brazil either. I don't know. But uh, it'd be fun for you and I to keep a close eye on the Gabe and Idolo rivalry. I think that's something that there might be something there that's legit. I would like to see that happen. I'm curious if they would even view each other as foes. I feel like they're the Brazilian contingent feels like a family and they're, they are brethren and they want to lift one another up. So I don't know that they'd be willing to take up the battle axe against one another. And, and that's unique to Brazil, by the way, because certainly Andy and Kelly were Americans. You could argue Hawaii isn't part of America in surfing, but they were both Americans. We've seen other Australian rivalries where two Aussies are going at it, but Brazil feels unique to me in that way. Yeah, I think you're right. We'll see how it plays out. And maybe I'm just making something out of nothing here, a mountain out of a molehill, but um, I sense that Idolo and John John are bigger rivals than Julian Wilson to Gabe Medina, but well, maybe look, it's a stretch. Well, look, let's get real. Julian Wilson doesn't have a world title. Julian Wilson is the inferior surfer for on paper. You know, Gabriel right. Medina has two world titles. So does John John Florence. So they look like that's the heavyweight. That is the championship bout is the two yeah. guys with the same record. Julian Wilson, the other thing is when those early – the 2014 events that I'm talking about, Julian was still on the ascent aiming for a world title. And so was Gabriel at that point. At this point, it feels like Julian is on the descent of his career and Gabriel still is on the upward trajectory. So it's almost, it's almost unfair. I I think that I don't know what Jake about Julian, about Julian Wilson and your comment that he's on the descent of his career. Um, how many more years does Julian Wilson have to win a world title before it's just, it's over? Uh, that, that carton of milk expired two years ago. 
It's over. Julian it's Wilson, negative according two. to you, will never win a world title. No, definitely not. I, I mean, we've been having this conversation, I'd say, for three years now. And even then, I thought it was, you know, a lot of things have to come together for Julian. But at this point, I don't see him keeping up with Felipe. I don't see him keeping up with Elo. G- with Idolo, with Gabe, with John John Florence, with, by the way, Kanoa Igarashi even. You know what I mean? Like, he's yeah. just kind of – I think I – if I can model my surfing out of, out of after any of those guys, I would model it after Julian. Julian yeah. is still one of my favorite surfers to watch. He yeah. was who I would want to surf like. When I see free surf clips of him, he's on a different level. But competitively – and what it takes to win a world title throughout the course of the year, he doesn't have the tenacity and the follow through and the consistency that all those guys have. Yeah. He's, he's got a little bit of Taj Burrow in him, but I, but that's not fair. I think he's more competitive than Taj, uh, at least from what you see from the fire that he shows outwardly. But um, yeah, I, I, it would be a long shot for sure. I think it would be a surprise if Julian Wilson won a world title. And I will tell you in one word the reason why he will not win a world title. Wifey? That falls exactly into what I'm thinking of. And it's grit. It's he doesn't have the steely determination that people who are less good looking, with less privilege, with less access, with less coaching from childhood have. Like Julian had too much too soon. He's been making millions of dollars for a very long time. The kid looks like Brad Pitt. It's like, it's hard to get world titles when you have that much fortune, period. You need, in order to get world titles, you need to have a level of steely grit, determination, and a desire to stomp on other people's throats. And Julian Wilson doesn't want to stomp on anybody's throats, you know? Well, uh, speaking of that, I've, I've got a must-see moment that segues into this. Okay. Have you seen this movie, En La Tormenta? No. Into the Storm? No. Well, a listener sent me this link to this movie. It's, it's playing on the um, Brooklyn Film Festival website. Somebody sent it to me, but I, I didn't watch it yet. Yeah, I got the same Instagram, right? The guy's like, hey, I was listening to you and David talk about movies that have that are compelling surf movies that are more than um, just, you know, fluff and love and spirituality, which have conflict and real deeper meaning. So I watched this movie and it's really great. And there's this kid and you might have heard of him because you kind of follow the amateur scene a little deeper than I do. But his name's Johnny Guerrero. And he's a Peruvian surfer. He basically grew up fatherless his dad was in prison and he grew up in a ghetto in peru and this movie covers all of the conflict of of a young surfer from a ghetto who's struggling between being um, a pro surfer and sort of adopting that lifestyle and that um that family so to speak and or sticking around in your barrio and kind of becoming what everyone else in that barrio as a young man has become that doesn't have a father figure, which is, you know, a life of crime and perhaps a drug and alcoholism. Um, and so this movie dives into this conflict and it follows Johnny Guerrero and it's really well done. And it's a bit of a tearjerker and I'm not going to go too further into the movie because I want you to see it, but just understand that 
It's a great film. You can watch it for free. Um, Sofia Milanovic is involved in this film. Um, and Johnny Guerrero is a guy that has, he has that grit that you're talking about. And he's a guy that after watching this film, that's all it took for me to be a Johnny Guerrero fan. And I don't know where he's at now. I know he's on the QS somewhere and you and I should keep our, and the listeners should keep an eye out for Johnny Guerrero and go watch this film into the storm. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'll look forward to seeing that. I messaged with the guy who sent that and he said that on a side note, Peru is on super strict COVID lockdown. Like you need permission to leave the house to get stuff. And, uh, he has not been able to surf or exercise for three months. So yeah, I know. Crazy. Well, take a, take a look at this film and we'll, maybe we can talk about some more next week. Yeah, I'll watch it. Um, my must see moment is inherent bummers, new surf film. Are you familiar? Yes. No, but I know that you and Chaz watched it and spoke about it on the on a Grit podcast, right? So fill yeah. Me in. So do you know Travis Ferre? I I know the name really well. I'm trying to remember where I know it. Isn't he? Wasn't he at Transworld for a while or Stab or something? Or? He was. So Travis was the editor in chief of Surfing Magazine for a couple of years. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And then when he left that, he started What Youth or okay, co yeah. founded What Youth with a number of uh, I think three other partners and has since left white youth and started a website called inherent bummer and basically uh put together a, a surf film a 30 minute surf film that harkens back to surf films of the mid 90s where it's a pastiche of various surfers from around the world all cut pastiche? together Pastiche? did you just say the word pastiche it is a pastiche style surf film. Yes. Okay. I don't know what that word means. You need to help me out here. It's a collage, Scott. It's a collage of different surfers all from around the world. So many surf films that you and I have seen in the last decade or two are marketing endeavors. You know, it's a brand promoting their surfers or it's a profile piece for a specific surfer. Well, think back to the 90s where you had Josh Palmer, certainly Taylor Steele to a degree, but even though he kind of worked with largely the same group of surfers, um, where this is just clips from around the world. The way that he put it together was really interesting. He started reaching out to friends, Craig Anderson, Chippa Wilson, Dane Reynolds, and said, hey, I know you guys are putting these clips out occasionally on the internet. Would you mind sending them over to me and we'll put together a little surf film so that it's all in one place? Because there's just a bunch of white noise on the internet, so much so that there's phenomenal surfing happening in your Instagram feed that you don't, you don't stop scrolling to watch because it's just another kid doing an air reverse and how many different kids can your brain even handle, you know? So at any rate, he kind of sifts through all of this footage from submissions that he received from everybody from Jay Davies and Lee Wilson to Felipe Toledo and Idolo Ferreira. And what about Elo? Did Elo send him a clip? <laughs> Elo did not make the cut. <laughs> Julian Wilson is in this film. Um, so, I mean, everybody, and again, Craig, the aforementioned Craig Anderson. So like everybody from A-list surfers to brand new kids that you've never heard of that are going toe to toe with some of these heavy hitters. And it's phenomenal. The film is so good. The music's great. The editing is no nonsense. It's just great raw surfing. Um, 
and every like there was it was full of surprises every individual section there was a clip that I had to rewind and watch and go holy cow I need to remember this kid's name that I've never heard of before a lot of people that again in Instagram hadn't fed me their algorithm had not fed me some of this content but it exists out there and so Travis and uh, Blake Myers is the guy who edited the video spent three weeks in quarantine collecting clips from around the world via the internet and then putting this thing together and it's radical. It's 27 minutes. It's completely free. It's on inherentbummer.com. Well worth watching. I felt inspired to shred. I was like, man, I watch a lot of surf videos and it's like, okay, that was a cool art piece, but I'm going to go make myself coffee and breakfast. This, I wanted to grab my board and wetsuit and fly out the door and go shred. So. Well, that's sort of the, that's sort of the litmus test, isn't it? Totally. Um, I have a Duke and a kook, but I, uh, depends how much time do you have? Do you have five minutes for me to read something else to you or do you yeah, gotta go? Yeah. Okay. No, I got five minutes. Let's do five minutes. Okay. Panda surfboards. You and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, Blake from Panda reached out and to give feedback on the podcast and what we were talking about, we were talking about Noah Dean riding his board in the electric acid surfboard test. Yes. And Noah, first of all, not surfing the board the way that it was meant to be surfed. And um, also, I think he was riding the wrong fins or something. I know he was riding the wrong fins with the Biolis example, but anyways, Panda reached out and he said, Hey guys, just heard the latest podcast. Big fan of listening to you guys while I'm working. Just wanted to clear up the fin thing from the electric acid surfboard test. I had given Noah these solid glass fins from true aims, which normally go really well in a board from sizes six foot six and up. But I cut down the board to 6'4 for Noah, knowing that he never rides boards other than his standard shorty. And we noticed going down in the smaller sizes, the board becomes uh, something different and the big fin becomes too stiff. He actually changed down to a smaller, softer fin, which works really well in these smaller versions of the board. Also, flex plays a huge part. The canards are actually splayed out a lot, which I think you mentioned, Scott. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I spoke to Stuart Darcy, who used to do all of Potts's Twinsers, and so I took his measurements and have actually evolved my own setup and placement. Um, also, I like that David said none of these guys surf the boards how they are meant to be surfed, and I agree that Stephanie Gilmore was the only one that surfed the boards how they were designed to be ridden. Noah was totally overpowering and oversurfing the board, and it's and that's no uh, way that it's meant to be surfed. He should have been letting the board run, slowing himself down, and letting the board do its thing. Um, I think that's this kind of all that's a, relevant to our conversation. I I. First of all, I would love to ride one of Blake's boards. I'd like to ride one of these Twinsers um, and give it a and give it a whirl because I know he makes great boards, and I'd like to see how the Twinser works with the canards a little bit straighter. Um, so that's a shout out to Blake. I'd love to give it a run. Yeah. Secondly, Blake and you are correct, and I agree with you guys. And it makes me think: who is the perfect surfer for the electric? surfboard acid test i think they nailed it with steph well no i i think that there's other options i'm not saying steph didn't do a good job but but you need to find somebody that's willing to um adapt to the board design and so i'm thinking out loud like just now this came to me you know and I, i don't know who it is but but 
and maybe you can help me and maybe the listeners can come up with somebody good too. But like the first name that came to my mind was, was Devin. Maybe it's Devin Howard. Now Devin doesn't ride performance, high performance shortboards, but that would be fun to see because we know he'll kill it on most any other board. And I got better. And he's got, got better he's options. Got the, I'm sure you do. And I, sure <laughs> I do, I'm sure I do too. That's just the first one that came to my mind. Bryce Frankly, Young. I, I'd like to be the guy. Okay. Bryce Young is a great, great one. Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Young. Young could absolutely do it. Um, Asher Pacey would be a great pick who would surf the board the way that it's meant to be surfed. Torin Martin would be a great pick. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it'd be really interesting to get somebody like Ryan Birch who actually shapes boards. Yeah. But Birch would be really good. Bert, and he's such a good surfer, but Birch would also probably have too much of an opinion going into it. Like he'll just pick up the board and have an opinion about it. Um, That's okay. I, I actually think Birch is really good because he's a shaper. Right. You know, like he'll be the best one at being able to convey his feeling and what he's getting out of the board, you know, to, to you and I and to the, to the viewing public. So I love that one because yeah. of, because of, like I said, he's a shaper. Yeah. I think Bryce Young too would be the other winner. Yeah. Yeah. So, but thanks so to that pa- is the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say a huge thanks to Panda Surfboards for sending that and for clarifying. I think that adds a lot of, um, context for our conversation and also a lot of insights related to what we were talking about last week when we had our fin discussion. Yeah. The, the Stuart Darcy thing is really cool and interesting. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, um, that Blake, you know, is, is leaning on some others that have been down the road. I had mentioned, I think on his Instagram or something, I think I, I did something cheeky, like I put at Will Jobson or hashtag Will Jobson or something. And, and he got back to me. He's like, absolutely, dude, I get it. You know? And, and so I think that's cool that the Blake's Blake seems like a good guy. Like for I, sure. I, I want to ride his boards. I want to check them out, you know? And your reference, by the way, for listeners who didn't catch it, Will Jobson is the inventor of the Twinser. Right. Exactly. So. He's a guy who basically, you know, Rusty looked to, um, and I don't want to put words in Rusty's and get this wrong, but I, I, I'm of the opinion, I, I, I believe that Rusty looked to Will when he was doing that C5 experiment when they were putting five fins, basically a three fin with the twins or canards on, in front of the, the front tri-fins, uh, that C5 experiment that Rusty did back in the, I think it was the late 90s, the early 2000s, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so we already discussed our kook is the looters who are stealing surfboards. My Duke is actually residents of Huntington beach because you said you made a a sly remark. Oh, in your hometown where they're rioting and looting. No, 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 no. They actually did not riot nor loot yesterday. And I'm going to read what um, was posted on Instagram from Robbie Crawford He said, what a proud day in Huntington Beach. There was a huge show of force by the OGs and the new Gs, all races and creeds, standing together, united for one sole purpose of keeping the town safe. There's lots of skirmishes. A few bitch slaps were thrown on agitators, but no riots nor looting. We were even on the front line talking to the protesters and working with them to keep the instigators from breaking the peace. I'd say a third of them were legitimate peaceful protesters and two thirds were there to cause trouble. They quickly realized uh, that we were 
from the community and we weren't fucking around. We made that clear and we took a stand. We found bricks, rocks, hammers and stuff stashed all over downtown and we took them away from these guys. The police had our backs and stood down when the locals were dealing with the agitators, then rolled in to disperse. Both sides worked together to quell the violence. This is how it's done, people. The media was silent on Huntington Beach, even though they were flying above in helicopters all day. I guess a community coming together to stop violence is not as important as dividing our country. Just wanted to put this story out there because you won't hear about it on the news. Be safe to, uh, Be safe out there. Big props for everyone that made today's protest such a success. And I honestly, uh, I can honestly say that Huntington Beach would look like LA or LB right now if it weren't uh, for us there to stop it. And then my other wow. buddy, my other buddy, uh, longtime surf ph- photographer and um, Huntington Beach fireman, Chris Sardellis, aka Sarge, also said that he was down there and had some confrontations with people that he had to kind of de-escalate. And he was there to protect his own neighborhood and his neighbor's businesses on Main Street from any potential rioting and looting. So shout out to all those people who went out there and did good work. All right. Well, I stand corrected. It sounds like uh, I did. I sent you some Instagram stuff that I saw. It was basically the two sides kind of, um, you know, spitting words back and forth. Nothing too crazy. Um, but so that's cool. I'm I'm glad that the locals kind of were like, ain't gonna happen here, you know. Yeah. They kind of held their own. Yeah, exactly. In a place that's known for riots and protests, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> for changing the reputation. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I'll tell you what. Until next week, David. Adios and aloha. Now I've been happy lately. Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, I've been smiling lately Dreaming about the world at one And I believe it could be Someday it's going to come Cause out on the edge of darkness There is a peace train Oh, peace train, take this country Come take me home again I've been smiling lately Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, peace train sounding louder Light on the peace train Good friends too Cause it's scary
the world as it is Why must we go on hating? Why can't we live in bliss? Cause out on the edge of darkness There rides a beast tame Oh beast tame, take this country Come take me home again Oh peace train sounding louder Ride on the peace train Come on the peace train Is peace train holy rolling Everyone jump up on the peace train Is this the peace